0: It's privilege to be here with you this morning, uh, whether here on our Canaigua campus, online campus, or Hopewell campus. We're continuing uh, our series in Romans 9 through 16. We're calling Metamorphosis, talking about the change that God uh, has developing within each and every one of us who give ourselves to him. Uh, and this week, we're actually starting sort of a series within a series. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at Paul's specific teaching on how Christians should respond toward other Christians. What's our responsibility toward other Christians? And I just want to sort of give you this caveat that as we look at the principles over the next three weeks, that the principles that we look at at how we as one believer is respond to another believer or our responsibility toward another believer, but it's actually applicable to almost every relationship we have, whether it's a husband and wife or a child and parent, parent and child, a coworker, schoolmate. That these principles really do work outside the family of God, but Paul is writing them to the family of God. And he's writing about unity. And the call for unity in the church is found throughout the New Testament. And and we as believers are called by God to belong to one body, one body, one church. And, And that one body we're called to belong to is strong and has integrity in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the world, to the degree, now let me say that again, to the degree, that it functions in harmony with every member playing his or her part, being a part of their essential role. Yet time and time again, unfortunately, many churches are characterized by division, not unity, distrust rather than love. Now don't get me wrong, peace and unity aren't the only virtue within the church. In other words, the church is also to stand up for truth, but we're to stand up to truth in love, but not to stand up for unity and at all costs because truth is very important. And there does come a time when unity might be sacrificed for the sake of truth. However, I believe most of the disruptions of peace and unity in the church don't take place over doctrinal issues for the most part. Uh, They're not over truth, but really petty arguments over the style of worship, personality of leadership, uh, carpet color and the like. And I find this story particularly fitting for what we're looking at this morning. It appears that at a particular church, a pastor was at an elder board meeting. And by the way, before I get into this any further, I want to say, after you hear this story, you'll understand all the more how much I appreciate the leadership team at Crosswinds. That what's about to happen in this story would never happen in a leadership meeting here. And I'm so thankful for that, by the way. Um, but this pastor was in this particular elder board meeting at this particular church, and they had just put down new carpet. And one of the elder board members stood, stood at the meeting and said, "I want to let you know what many people are saying." Now, if you're in leadership, you've met many people many times. That anytime someone has a complaint, usually many people have the complaint, not a person. And so I'm in the habit of saying, "Well, how many? Is, how many?" And, and usually they'll say three or four. I say, "That's a few. That's not many." But many people had this complaint that some people, these particular people were coming in with dirty shoes and journeying up the carpet. And would the leadership, which by the way meant the pastor, would the leadership tell those people not to come back? Well, the pastor very politely excused himself from the meeting and, and left. And the elder boy was a little interested and intrigued about where the pastor was going. And when they came out, they realized he was pulling up the carpet. To which they asked him to please stop, they got the point. <laughs> The point was what? That we should never, ever, ever allow things to become more important than people. And then don't get me wrong, as much as we need to take care of the facility that God has given us, we must never put things before people. We must never put minor things before the main thing, which is knowing God and making him known. I love the fact that first church I worked at, I was a student pastor. And they had been in this building for about a year. And I heard the story that the very first Sunday we're in this new building, the lead pastor who I served under asked two of the students in the uh, student ministry if they would come in and have a water gun fight on the stage. And so they were celebrating this brand new building and all of a sudden these teens came up on the stage and had this water gun fight. And he said, this is God's building, not yours. (laughs) And God wants us to be able to use it for everything. And it was a multi-use room like this one where we have laser tag and everything else that happens in this room as well as when we come here to worship. I'm thankful to be a part of a church is what I'm saying that keeps the main thing, the main thing, right, church? And the passage, yeah, you can do that. I'm excited about it too. It makes what I do a whole lot easier. The passage we're about to explore really does speak of unity but it speaks of it understanding again that these two verses are sort of the underpinning of what Paul's gonna talk about in the next three weeks. The first one we've looked over and over again. We started this part of the series nine through 16, uh, already jumping to, to Romans 12, one, where it says we give ourselves wholly, completely over to God. Now I understand that that's usually a daily commitment in my life and sometimes in some days a commitment I make throughout the day. Ever had one of those days? Lord, I'm losing focus, I'm yours. So Paul takes for granted that those he's writing to have fulfilled Romans 12, one, they're presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice to God. But he's also sort of taking for granted that we have also um, been prayerfully anticipating that Romans thirteen eight would be true in our life. Don't owe anyone anything except to love each other. That Paul understands that he's writing to people who are believers, so, that, so they have come to Christ, they've been made right with God. Again, we call that what? Justified, they've been made right with God. And since they've been right with God, they're they're living out of Romans 12.1 and Romans 13.8. In other words, they're being sanctified means becoming like Jesus. And becoming like Jesus how? In his character, in his love, in his purpose, in his priorities. And he says, this is the foundation. So he assumes that those addressed are doing these things And then this is what he writes. Here's our passage for this morning, Romans 14, 1 through 13. It reads this way. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let me camp there for a second and say we're going to get to it, so if you're a vegetarian, do not be offended. Okay, verse 3. Let let not the one who eats despise the the one who, who abstains, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live in the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this, to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother." Now, let me start by just admitting that's a mouthful. But there's a lot to take in there, and we're gonna unpack it together. But here's the overarching point of Romans 14, 1 through 13. The overarching point is this. The stronger Christian accommodates the weaker one. The stronger Christian accommodates the weaker one. We're gonna get into what's stronger and weaker, what that means in just a moment. But the initial note of radical importance, that we have to understand that this is written under, is that Paul assumes a plurality of Christian lifestyles. Paul understands that Christians serving the same God, filled with the same spirit, will inevitably, due to culture, background, mentorship, and the sort, have differing ideas on what constitutes a proper Christian lifestyle. It's not that he teaches that it's not important that we all understand what modesty is, or it's not important that we that we all understand what humility is. We all need to understand what modesty and humility is, but the reality of it is because of our background, because of our mentorship, because of our culture, we may understand those two words a little differently. And I was looking at this passage and thinking about that point, and I was brought back to my senior year in high school. There were two colleges, two universities that were on my radar to attend after I graduated. One was in South Carolina, the other was in Indiana. And I happened to go to the one in South Carolina to visit, And and I was sitting in a Bible class because I was going to be a pastor. So I'm sitting in this Bible class. I'm sitting next to a college student who had been to one of our teen camps. So I knew him. And in the class, they were talking about issues that the church sort of disagrees on. And the issue they brought up was, was mixed bathing okay? How many people know what I mean when I say mixed bathing? Yeah, three or four. That's last service too. That's where I was. You need to understand my background. I was a church kid of unchurched parents. So I came to Christ when I was five. My parents didn't come to church until I was 15. Uh, I came to Christ until I was 15. I was dropped off at church, weird story, throughout my whole childhood, mentored very well in those churches. But, but my parents weren't believers for so many years after that. So what did I know? I knew the essentials of the faith, but didn't know church politics. Like, I was totally ignorant of it, which by the way was a blessing. I just didn't know it. And so I'm in this class and they're talking about, is it okay or not for mixed bathing? In my naive mind, I thought they were asking, was it okay for a man and woman who weren't married to take a bath together? And I started as a 17-year-old getting mad. I thought, why would I ever go to a Christian school that would debate this issue? Like if they don't have this one down, I don't know what else they are thinking, but they don't understand the gospel, right? And and I leaned over to my friend. I said, I can't believe you guys are discussing this. What a waste of time. The word's very clear on this one, I think. And when he realized what I was misunderstanding, he began to laugh, which made me madder. I thought, I thought this isn't funny. This is an important issue. And, and he raised his hand and told the teacher. Then the whole class laughed. And there I was, this high school student, feeling pretty dumb, to be honest with you. And the teacher explained what they were talking about, that mixed bathing meant swimming. Can men and women swim together? Well, I began to laugh. I'm from Florida, 10 minutes from the beach. And I thought, is that really an issue in the church? Like, do people really talk about such things? Because that's my whole life, you know, going to the beach. And and I I was sort of blown away by it. Now, fast forward, the first church I, I went to pastor at as a student pastor, my lead pastor's father goes down to a Christian retirement village in Florida. And they put in a pool. And so help me. One of the first things they do is pull together a meeting to decide whether they can swim with their spouses or not. To which my lead pastor's dad says, I've been married for 40 some years. My eyesight is even somewhat gone. I'm swimming with my wife. Fast forward after that, about four years after that, our church bought an athletic center to relocate in, it had a pool. I was a student pastor. We were in a meeting, whether we were going to keep the pool or not, and I stood in the meeting and said, whether we keep it long-term or not, as long as we have it, I'm going swimming, to which the whole church says, sound good to us. Fast forward a couple years after that, and a lady had just attended our church a year earlier, came to Christ. Her husband had yet to step foot in a church, let alone the one she was attending, and he said to her, if you find a church with a pool, I will go to it. Now, you know what he was doing. He figured, what church would have a pool? I don't know what his background is. And she said, I can't wait to see you there Sunday. <laughs> Two weeks later, he came to Christ. So I don't know what this whole mixed bathing thing is, but I'm for it. Okay, I'm for it. I decided I was for it. I was against it, then I was for it. And it's sort of the way it works. But we, we, you know what we're getting to, right? I mean, church sometimes has these issues that they talk over, and sometimes they cause division. Uh, And Paul understood that in Rome, there were issues that were causing division. That's why he writes this. And what is the instruction given us in in, in Romans 14.1? It's a single word, welcome. Believers are to welcome one another in fellowship, considering each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And in other words, we're not to deny fellowship with one another over issues of difference of opinion. We're not talking about doctrine here. We're talking about opinion. And the Roman church had some significant differences. I'm just going to list a few that Paul lists. First of all, diet. Some were eating kosher and some were not, right? There were Jewish Christians who continued to live as Jews and and, and to keep the kosher diet. And there were Gentile believers who weren't. And this was causing some issues. See, in the Greco-Roman world, pig was considered a delicacy, pork. And, And so it was an issue. Because the Jews, of course, were forbidden to eat pork. In fact, they were so strongly against it. We see this story in 2 Maccabees that when the Syrians took over Israel, but they actually took an elderly priest and they tortured him with pork. They put pork in his mouth and said, you will eat this. And he would not. In fact, he spit it out. He chose death rather than eating pork. So you can imagine the church potlucks in the church in Rome. A Gentile Christian family brings a big, huge pot roast, you know, this, this pork roast, and it brings it there and, and, and sets it on the table. And, and the Jewish believers, of course, were offended by that. And it says that they weren't even eating meat. Now, why weren't they eating meat? Not because they chose to be vegetarian per se, but because probably there weren't any kosher um, butcher shops in Rome. And so to not violate what they believed was right or wrong, they, they just simply didn't eat meat. And so Paul's basically saying to the Gentile believers, it's okay for you to eat your pork roast, just eat it at home. Don't bring it to the potluck where you're offending half the people who are sitting there. Now, why does he pick on that? Well, we'll get there in a minute. The other thing that they were dealing with was what day should we worship? The Jewish believers were saying we should worship on the Sabbath, the true Sabbath. And then, and then the, the, the Gentile believers were saying, no, we want you to do the Lord's day, Sunday. So they're arguing over which day to worship. We'll find out a little more next week that some were saying we should drink wine and some were saying we shouldn't drink wine. And we'll look at that a little bit next week. But, but there were these cultural differences between the believers. There were, there were differences in the way they understood doctrine. And that's where the weak in the faith and the strong in the faith come in. The, the weak in the faith were probably the Jewish believers and the strong in the faith were probably the Gentile believers as we look at the writing but I want to be really clear here. The strong and weak had nothing to do with whether they knew Jesus, right? We're on the same page there. The Jewish Christians knew Jesus, right? They were Christian. The Gentile Christians, they knew Jesus. They were Christian. What it speaks of when he writes the faith is doctrine. He's saying the Gentile believers understood the doctrine of scripture better than the Jewish Christians. Sort of ironic, isn't it? What happens is this, the first Jerusalem council is recorded for us in the book of Acts. Believers gather together, most of them Jewish believers, by the way, and this was the main question they had to answer. Do you have to become Jewish first in order to become a Christian, right? And what they decided at the council was you did not. But Gentile believers did not have to become Jewish to become Christian, they could become Christian by Christ by the way, and all Gentiles say amen. But listen, they said, but you can remain Jewish and be Christian. But they had to answer this. Then what do you follow in the Old Testament? That's a good question, right? Because there's three forms of law in the Old Testament. There's there's moral law, the 10 commandments. There's civil law in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel are given sort of governmental systems and laws that they were supposed to keep and and then there's ceremonial law, the sacrifices, and the temple worship that was taking place. And so they, they had to discuss, when you become a believer, is all this law still apply to your life? Does part of it apply to your life? I mean, that's a great question. And, and what they determined, and we see it reinforced over and over and over again in the New Testament, was the moral law is still abiding on all of us. The Ten Commandments, right? In other words, as believers, we shouldn't murder, Right? On the same page here, I was getting scared of looking at seeing who maybe didn't get that one to keep a little distance beyond six feet. Yeah, it, 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 the moral law is still there, but the civil law applied to a particular people at a particular time. In, in the ceremonial law, Jesus is the one-time sacrifice once and for all, praise God. And, and so only the moral law are we under. But, the, but those who are weaker in the faith say, no, 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 we need to follow everything. And, and they also were, were judging those who were Gentile believers who weren't trying to keep everything, who were eating pork and saying, We don't even know if you're believers. And the stronger Christians were responding in kind, really looking down on the Jewish believers. And Paul basically, if I can just sum up what he's saying this week in this passage, he's saying, Get over yourselves. In fact, if you leave here with, with one point, other than the two points I bring out of the passage, get over yourself. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's more concerned. With with them understanding love and caring for one another, then who is right? In fact, next week we'll look at the difference in even outcomes. Some were building up, some were tearing down, and and both the weak and the strong are to do what they're to do as an expression of what? Serving the Lord. It's interesting, everything comes back to Jesus. I'll have conversations with people outside church, right? and they'll say, you know what, I have a hard time with God because God seems to be so into himself. You know? And, and, and we'll have a conversation. I'll we'll say, you know, God doesn't really care about me. or He's so... And I'll say, no, 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 that's just not true. In fact, what blows my mind is the God who spoke all this new existence is, is the God of humility. Every time I think about that, it just somewhat touches me in the inner parts of my soul. But the God who created everything, who had every right to say, you know what? If you want to go your own way, go your own way. If you want to stay in the predicament you've created, stay in the predicament you've created, God could have said that and he would have been right in saying it, right? I mean, he's God, we're not. But what's the scripture tell us? Paul, Philippians 2. Christ humbled himself. He takes on on his divinity, humanity, and he humbles himself to the point of not just being born, but dying on the cross. No, no, my God's a humble God. And he calls us into the same humility toward one another. In fact, in verse 13, Paul really sums up the instruction of of verses 1 through 12. We're not to judge, but to determine to not be a stumbling block or obstacle in another's way. He's talking about this key point here that that, that, that all of us are in danger of, of violating and that's becoming a stumbling block. And he says, listen, if the stronger is to accommodate the weaker, and what he means by that, again, is if, if those who understand Christian doctrine better are the ones to accommodate the weaker, even though they're right, how many of you like to be right? How many of you really like to be right? Like, I really like to be right. And last night, my son and I were in a, a, a talk about snow. And, and I, he said, you always have to be right. And I said, I don't always have to be right. It just happens to be I usually am. That's what what I said. That's what I said. And and, yeah, he's shaking his head now like he did then. Like, oh my goodness. It was true. It's true. I like to be right. And and, and we do. But Paul is saying, you can be right and still be wrong.
1: You can be right and still be wrong.
0: How? Because you can be right and still be a stumbling block to someone else. Again, we're not talking about doctrinal truth here. We're talking about opinions. And this is where we can really be divided with one another is over our opinions. Is when one person says, I'm passionate about this, so everyone in the church needs to be passionate about this. Right? And I go, if you're passionate about it, get about doing it. And if you're getting other people in on it, it's great. But, you know, there's a lot to be done. We all need to be passionate about different things. Under the guise of knowing God and making Him known, right? A lot to be done. A lot of us to be about it doing it. It's interesting to me that really, when it comes down to it, the most negative people I've heard about the church are church people. This is true. I don't know what your background is, but a lot of my family and my not my parents, they were in Christ, but now, and my brother's in Christ, but outside, a lot of my family doesn't go to church. And you know what? They never talk about church. Like they're not talking bad about it. Like you read Christian books and, and they act like people outside the walls of this church. All they do is talk about church. So let me let you know, if you've been in church your whole life, they're not talking about you. Like you're not on their radar. That's a shame. We should be on the radar, right? But we're not. In fact, many in my family, when they need prayer for something, no, they don't go to church, many of them. Not all of them, but some, most of them don't go to church. They're not necessarily what I would call Christian and, and because they don't know Christ. And so they're not great. But when they need prayer, guess who they call? Someone who can get the prayer to me, because as a family priest, I pray for the family. So when they need help, there's something within them that says there's something else. No, no, but church people often talk poorly about the church. And I think Paul would say, why are you doing that? Like, we're the bride of Christ. Don't, don't, like, if we're doing that, why would the world want to come? It's like having a family gathering and you've been bad-mouthing your family for like years around a friend and said, hey, we have a gathering, would you like to come? I don't think so. Your family sounds like a bunch of jerks. I'm I'm not gonna show up.
1: Well, come on, church. Paul says, get
0: over yourself. Paul's bottom line concerning those who pride themselves on being strong in the faith is to become selfless, laying down their rights for unity. Martin Luther wrote it this way. He said, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's a real wordy way of saying this, that we have a lot of freedom in Christ, don't we, church? We have this parameter of safety, as Scripture tells us about, but we have a lot of freedom. And Martin Luther says, do you know what we do with that freedom? The same thing Christ does. We humble ourselves. We make sure we're not causing another to stumble. We make sure we're living in a way that that respects those, even who maybe are weaker in the faith. Again, Paul never teaches that unity should be held above biblical truth. He's talking about the non-essentials. Christian brothers and sisters have, have been divided over issues such as the mode of baptism, the wearing of jewelry, whether miraculous signs and wonders are intended frequently or infrequently how Old Testament prophecy has been or will be fulfilled. To give you an idea of what my mentorship was on, 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 on prophecy, and you like it or not, right? You gotta love me, I'm your brother. But my pastor always said he was a pan theolo- theologian when it came to prophecy. And I, I was a pantheologian. He said, it'll all pan out when we get there. That's what he said. he said. He said, it'll all pan out when we get there. He believed in it, knew that, that prophecy is there, so we'll trust in Jesus, but in the end, yeah, no one knows until it happens. How Old Testament trials, the style of music, the, the, the appropriateness of dress, especially in church, style of preaching, pews or chairs. I had, a, I had a friend recently who was in a church. He said, You want to know one positive thing that's come out of COVID? I was like, Sure, I'd love to know that. <laughs> what, what, what's what's happened? He said, We got to put chairs in our sanctuary. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, we realized that pews didn't allow as many people to be in there with all the things. We were trying to do chairs for years. And I said, look, we can have twice as many people if we have chairs. And the church said, okay, do it. He said, so we've been like for a decade and like we want chairs and they haven't been able to do it because of COVID. We actually got to get them. I said, well, good for you. That's, that's great. But what's at the center of the issue? It's, 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 it's really, think about this, when people fallaciously believe that, that, they're, that what they're talking about is a biblical mandate, when it's basically a biblical opinion. I mean, what Paul has done here is he's he's really brought this foundational issue to the table that Christians in Rome need to stop judging each other. And he explains why, because we serve God
1: and God is our judge. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us, judge not lest
0: we be judged. Jesus said, look, Get the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out of someone else's. By the way, he's not speaking against accountability. How many of you, we we are to be accountable to each other, right? I mean, if one of you came up and said, I think God wants me to kill somebody, I'd go, no, he doesn't, right? He doesn't want you to do that. But how about a movie? There are some movies, right, that, that, that we all know we shouldn't go to. At least we should, right? If you don't know which ones I'm talking about, come up to me after service, I'll help you out. But then there are others who who have different conscience over different things. Some of you may not even feel comfortable going to a cinema. Others do. By the way, there's nowhere in Scripture where it says do not or go to a cinema. In fact, in in the area of theology, these are called adiaphora. What's adiaphora? Adiaphora responds to those things which aren't commanded not to do in Scripture and aren't commanded to do in Scripture. They're a matter of conscience. And so what do we do on those issues? we'll, We'll look at this in the next week and two. Next the next couple of weeks. Paul would say you follow your conscience, but you don't judge other on your conscience on these things. That if God's calling you not to do it, don't do it, because it's sin to you. But what's Paul saying to the stronger believer who understands their freedom a little more? Humble yourself. If, if a pork roast is going to offend someone at the potluck, don't bring it. Eat before you come.
1: That's a loving thing to do, right? But I'm right. They're wrong. One of the most loving things to do is to give up your right for another. Isn't that what Jesus did?
0: Like Jesus gave up his right for us. As God, he died on the cross. What greater humility has ever happened? Ever. What greater love has ever been shown? And Paul says, if we're becoming like Christ, in his character and his love and his purpose and his priorities, then we'll learn to do that too. We'll learn to in these areas of conscience, not of, not of biblical truth, but of conscience to be able to say, I'm not going to judge you because God is your judge. I'll keep you accountable on these things that we know are essential to the faith. But outside of that, where there's a ton of freedom, I'm going to let God be your judge. In fact, Paul quotes from Isaiah 45, 23 and verse 11 that all people have to render an account to God in the end. Romans 14, 11. Look at it with me again. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then look at the follow-up verse, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In other words, Paul's saying to the weak Christian, don't judge the stronger Christians because they have what appears to be more freedom in Christ and Stronger Christian, don't show contempt and look down on the weaker Christian because you feel they don't understand the freedom they have in Christ. Understand that when you stand before God, it's not a group event. It's you and God, and you're going to give account.
1: Think about that. The very first sin we know about,
0: what does Adam do? God says, Adam, I'm I'm, going to paraphrase. Adam, what have you done? And he says, she made me do it. Is that not what he says? Who heard from God the command? You remember the story in Genesis? Adam did. God told Adam, Adam told Eve. Adam should have kept Eve accountable. Instead, he threw her under the bus. There is another message on that about the passive male in church and culture, but we won't go there. But you know what? We still sort of live like that, don't we?
1: We do. Why well, would be a better Christian if if everyone would just think like I did, by the way, the world would be a more messed up place. But, but I mean, right?
0: Paul says us the beauty of the church is that God has brought all this diversity to be united in the love of Christ.
1: And Paul says, get over yourself. By the way, if you want your marriage to work, get over yourself. If you wanna learn how to love your neighbor, get over yourself. I think sometimes the church wants culture to
0: change, not so people will come to Jesus, and then become like him. But they would just be really happy if they just became like Jesus so we didn't feel uncomfortable around them. One of my great fears when I'm out in public is someone finds out I'm a pastor too soon. Because once they do, and you've heard me say it, they become Sunday school kids. And our discussion becomes a little fake. I don't expect people to live by the job description of a believer if they're not a believer, but I do expect myself to live by the job description of a believer because I am one. And I don't want the world to just be a better place. I want the world to know Jesus. And Jesus said, they'll know, they'll know why I came as high priestly prayer. This sort of blows my mind when I think about it. They'll know why I came when they see my church loving each other. Why? Because the God who literally got over himself, I don't mean that out of any different respect, but said, I know I'm God, but I'm going to humble myself. God,
1: I'm going to humble myself. i take humanity upon my divinity. I'm going to die the, on the cross for their sins. It says, won't you join with me? Humble yourself. Lovely. Love one another. Would you pray with me? Father, when we look at your word and we read about who you are, it, it just amazes me that the God who owes us nothing gave us everything.
0: That the God who, who is the ultimate judge was the same God who said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to give my life as a sacrifice for all. And you're a God of truth and you want us to be a church of truth, but you want us to be a church of truth that's bathed in your love for you and your love for one another and love for those who've yet to receive you as Lord and Savior. God, would you help us step out of our own way every day and give ourselves wholly to you And as I've already confessed, some days are those days, which it's not just a morning commitment. It's it's like throughout the day, I've had to stop and I've got to say, God, I'm drifting away from keeping the main thing, the main thing. Help me stay focused on you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would fill us as a clan and we're just one clan in the big tribe of believers, but would you fill us as a clan with such a deep love for you and each other that that Lord, uh, your message would spread throughout our region in power. But we're not just praying that the world would become a better place, but that our neighbors would come to know you as Lord and Savior. But they would enter into freedom in you. Lord, I admit I'm messy. And Lord, as as people in this room have heard me say many times, we're all messy. And if we're not thinking we're messy, we're really messy. But there's something miraculous that you do with the mess. It's a sacred mess because when you are a part of it. You do make us more like you. You transform our character. You transform our love. You transform our purpose and our priorities to that of Christ. And Lord, I pray you would continue to do that in us that it wouldn't just impact our relationship with, from Christian to Christian, but our relationship with our neighbors and our our schoolmates and our our co-workers. And and Lord, that we do pray that our, our whole region would have a repeated opportunity to see the gospel and the acts of love that we're living out and hear the gospel repeatedly. Lord God, that there'd be opportunity to come to know you. I pray even now in this room, Lord God, online and At the Hopewell campus, if there's someone who's yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, but here and here and now, in the quietness of their heart, that they would say, Jesus, I I need you as Lord and Savior of my life. Begin that relationship with you. And for those of us who made that relationship, would you just take us another step closer into becoming like Jesus? Would you help us be unified in you? And we who may be stronger, who may be right, Lord God, with biblical talk. May, may, we, may we accommodate the, the weaker among us. May we not be a stumbling block to one another, but may we do, as we're going to look at next week, Lord God, may we be an encouragement to one another of what it means to, to really walk with you. Lord, our, our nation right now needs unity. But unity begins in the house of God. And so would you unite us in you, Under your truth, under your truth, we're not going to compromise your truth, but would you unite us in you and fill us with your love so that it would overflow into the streets. And as you've blessed our gathering, would you bless us as we scatter to be a blessing to those around us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.